stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services, empowering its customers by making innovative financial services accessible to all. Check them out at hellozai.com. Our guest today delivers a proven roadmap for large corporations collaborating with startups. Drawing in over a decade of international research, he explains the why, the how, and the where of corporate startup partnering. In his book, we learn how to focus on the three pillars of synergy, interface, and exemplar to achieve outstanding results in your partnership. Why the very thing that attracts large corporations to startups, their significant differences also makes it difficult to work together. And finally, where in the world to find your ideal startup partnerships and how to use them as a force for good. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft and Other Corporations on Partnering with Startups, Shamin Prajantham. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Aidan. I've been really looking forward to this and it's great to be on your show. It's great to finally have you on the show. And I was telling you before uh, we came on air, I, I tried to wear a pin to reflect the show in some way. I couldn't find a gorilla, but I have a monkey here on my lapel as well. So not literally for those people who are just listening to us. And for those of you who are watching us, you'll see behind me, I have two copies of Shamin's great book. That means there's a one up for grabs for you. Just sign up to the innovation show newsletter and you'll be in with a chance to win that fantastic book. Shamin, let's get into it. There's so much content and you have kindly offered to do a multiple part series and I think we're going to need it because there is so much research, so much scar tissue of experience and so many conversations you've had piled into this book. It is the ultimate book for people looking to partner with startups and I ha cannot highly recommend it enough for people who need to look at this as a way forward for their organizations. But I thought for this first episode, we'd give a kind of an overview and help people get their mind into this game. How does it work, etc. And then we'll run through the various processes that I mentioned there in the introduction. And I thought we'd start with an interesting moment in your life cycle of this book, which was the bravery you plucked up to ask a question to the great CK Prahalad. And that was fateful moment that sparked you onto this quest that's lasted over a decade, perhaps we'll start there. Well, thank you for all the kind words. And yes, that was in fact, a very interesting moment. So I had um, completed my PhD studies in uh, Glasgow in Scotland in 2005, having studied how startups go international. And I was at my first major conference after that, the following year in the summer of 2006. And there was a, um, an award ceremony within this major conference for, a, you know, it was a distinguished scholar award and CK won the award. And at the end there were, you know, question and answers as uh, is normally the case. And then at one point, exactly as you said, I plucked up the courage to ask a question. And, what I'd been observing back in Scotland was that we in international business academia, we were tending to study big companies separately and uh, young international startups. In fact, what I was getting into at the time was quite a uh, trendy kind of area within international business. But the people who studied big companies were very different from the people who were studying the startups. But in the years since I graduated, I began to observe in Scotland how some big multinationals like IBM, which had been around for a few decades on microsystems, they were really anxious to up their game, to do more in their subsidiaries, more innovation, you know, having originally come in as manufacturing subsidiaries. Uh, and I was also seeing that quite cleverly, the policymakers in Scottish enterprise for instance, were seeing opportunities to connect them with some of the local startups because the startups were also interested in getting access to the muscle of the, the commercial muscle of these big companies. And so 
these were sort of some initial signals I was beginning to see, weak signals, if you will. Also, I'd come across in some emerging markets, for example, in Bangalore, uh, a startup I was hearing was partnering with Microsoft. So having begun to observe this, I asked CK, I said, you know, what do you think about this topic of startups and big companies partnering? Uh, do you think it's worth pursuing for a young academic like me? Uh, and his reply was, actually, I don't think these smaller companies have a choice. They need to learn to dance with the big gorilla. So I latched onto this idea of dancing with gorillas. And actually, my first major article came out a couple of years later in California Management Review called Dancing with Gorillas. So there, for me, the focal actor was the startup. And the question was, how can they partner with, with big companies? But over time, uh, as big companies started to do this more systematically, then I began to realize that the big gorillas were learning to dance. And so the book is written primarily for the big company as an audience, but this was how, how it all began. It's a great title, isn't it? And I love the way the seed was planted and you you nurtured it over the years, but you certainly did nurture it and you certainly did invest so much time in this. Next, you, you tell us corporate startup partnering has become an integral part of corporate innovation, reflecting a greater openness in companies' efforts to innovate. And while there are many other ways of engaging with corporate innovation, such as entrepreneurship or corporate venture capital, the fundamentals of partnering perspective that this book deals with offer a useful perspective that is relevant to be incorporated into those efforts. Perhaps you'll tell us a bit about that, because these are key lenses through which to read and to listen to the show. Absolutely. So um, as you had indicated uh, by kindly reading the entire title of the book, you know, the subtitle indicates that Microsoft is a major case in the book. And so this was the company that I've studied the longest. And I began to notice shortly after that conversation with CK, as I started uh, talking to different companies, Microsoft seemed to be at a point where it was recognizing a big threat from the open source software movement. And so they were suddenly finding that startups were having access to free uh, software tools. And, uh, you know, Microsoft, basically their business model is they want to get other software companies to build on top of their platform technologies. At least by that point, it was clear that that was their Big, uh, their, their business model. They were very committed to serving enterprise customers. And so there was this recognition that, hey, we can't let these startups get away. We need their energy, their um, in innovation to build on top of our tools, help to make our tools better, but also then drive revenues for the entire ecosystem. In other words, I was beginning to see big companies like that becoming a lot more humble. Uh, and then over time, this turned out to be the case for companies from more traditional sectors as well, especially as digitalization began to take hold. Now, what was happening in terms of uh, academia was people like Henry Chesbra were already talking about this idea of open innovation and the idea that Companies don't necessarily have to do everything themselves. That was the sort of more traditional closed innovation approach. Uh, not that that wasn't important anymore, but that this could be complemented by um, engaging with external collaborators. So I think what I was beginning to observe was a subset of this wider open innovation phenomenon. And in the excerpt you read out, I refer to a couple of other ways of, of trying to address this need to deal with change and, and become more innovative. One of them is, of course, intrapreneurship. And this is a, a notion that has sort of gone in and out of fashion for a long time. I remember even in the, in the mid-80s, I think, um, one of the, the business magazines in the U.S. ran a, an article on it, and Steve Jobs is famously quoted as saying, we did this way before it became a, a thing, you know, uh, going back into the garage within the, the organization. Uh, and over time, what I began to realize is many of the people that I was 
talking to who were engaging with startups were in fact intrapreneurs, uh, but they were deciding to help the companies become more entrepreneurial by looking on the outside. So uh, I see intrapreneurship and engaging with startups as highly complementary. And in fact, some intrapreneurship programs now encourage the internal teams working on new projects to engage with startups on the outside. The other thing I, I, I was very conscious of was that even before I'd started my work, some companies had a corporate venture capital arm, which were investing in startups. But the type of startup in terms of its stage, uh, its uh, life cycle stage or its level of maturity was a bit different. So the people I was beginning to talk to were typically looking at early stage startups. These corporate venture capital folks were investing in more mature startups. And in fact, I was um, wondering whether I shouldn't incorporate uh, that aspect into my work as well. I happened to meet um, a guy called uh, Gerald Brady at Silicon Valley Bank. And he said to me, he's an expert on corporate venture capital, but he said to me, look, the important thing is the partnering mindset. You know, you can't invest in a startup without partnering. You can partner with them without investing. So he encouraged me to, to hold on to the focus of partnering, you know, without necessarily investing. So, so my point is that uh, this is but one way to deal with um, the challenge of being innovative and entrepreneurial, but I see these as highly complementary with the other tools. You know, some people that I've interviewed who are very passionate about their corporations partnering with startups tend to position this as superior to corporate venture capital or intrapreneurship. Uh, my view, uh, I suppose, as an academic is, I think these are complementary. There's a role for all of these, but this is a very interesting way of going about becoming, uh, seeking to become more entrepreneurial because with corporate venture capital, you tend to deal with a smaller number of startups. You know, how many deals are you likely to do in a year? It tends to be, you know, between 10 and 50 in many cases. With the partnering approach, you can probably deal with hundreds um, on a global basis. So, so this, you know, the options that it presents to the company are, are more. I think it's important what you said there, the mindset, because out of everything I've read in your work and the deep research you did, this word kept coming back and then it even became more to the fore as Satya Nadella took over as CEO as well, the growth mindset within the organization. And the book opens with an account of Microsoft. And, and I thought today we might give a brief history of that story but it culminates with an outline of the book's six chapters with two each in three parts. Why, how and where, and we'll go through them in time. But each part highlights an important mindset, which is really important. Entrepreneurial, collaborative and global, respectively. And what I find interesting and crucial is how the book highlights this over and over, the importance of all three mindsets. And it's particularly the mental over the mechanical, it wasn't just actually the work they did, it was how they thought about it and how they nurtured them and how they had patience as these new mindsets cultivated and grew within the organization. Aiden, you said it so well, I'm not sure <laughs> how I can better that, but, but that's exactly right. So the three things that I observed uh, with the Microsoft story was, first of all, what they were doing was tightly aligned with their strategy. And of course, it wasn't all crystal clear at the outset, but you know, the, their foray into partnering with startups was very strategic to begin with. They felt it was linked to revisiting their business model and uh, you know, going beyond the PC client world. And a lot of this started in Steve Barmer's era, and a big uh, driver of this was Dana Lewin, who was brought in by Steve Barmer in the early 2000s. So um, I, I was very conscious of the strategic aspect of this, how this played out over time, therefore the why, and the big driver here was this entrepreneurial uh, mindset. But then also what they were figuring out 
uh, and this kept evolving was how do you engage with these startups? Uh, and that, of course, uh, showed the collaborative mindset. Uh, and then what's absolutely fascinating for me as an international business researcher about Microsoft is just the sheer breadth of locations that their activities have um, spanned. And I am just so, so lucky that I got to interview people on both sides, Microsoft managers and startup partners in North America, Europe, Asia, uh, Africa. And, uh, you know, to see the global mindset at play has been absolutely great. And so uh, that was very um, key in shaping my thinking. And I think um, it's a good way in which uh, people in companies who want to think about engaging with startups, sort of the big picture, it's useful to think about the why, how, and the where. But also, if you don't happen to be particularly interested in big companies partnering with startups, at, with the sort of specificity that I'm interested in, and I'm sure many in your audience are, but not everybody will be, I still think those three mindsets, the entrepreneurial mindset, the collaborative mindset, and the global mindset, are still very useful um, in, in many facets of organizational life and indeed social change. And, and I might add for startups to listen to the show as well, very interesting to see why would they engage with these big corporate entities. And th this brings to mind a great concept that you mentioned within the book, because you say an important insight that you got as you studied many companies is what you call the paradox of asymmetry. I love that. That is, corporates and startups seem to be attracted to each other because they were hugely different and had things that the other wanted. Perhaps you take us through this because this is key and it may look like the match made in heaven, but it certainly isn't very easy to pull off. Aidan, you've, you've done a, a really fantastic job in reading the book and you've absolutely grasped the, uh, the essence of it. So when we start with the why, and you know, there's an entrepreneurial mindset, there's a recognition that the company needs to be more entrepreneurial, a humility that says we may not have all the answers and we look to the outside, you see this potential complementarity. So the big company has scale and resources and legitimacy. The startup has the creativity, the agility, the novelty of ideas and so on. And that's the, the part where it seems like a marriage made in heaven. But then when these companies actually start engaging with each other, a lot of frustration uh, can set in. And, and the startup, I think, particularly feels this because in some senses, they are the, the less powerful entity. And, and that's what when it, it hit me that actually the frustration was emanating for the very reasons that made it attractive to talk to each other in the first place, their very differences. Uh, and just as an aside, a, a friend who read the book uh, later sent me an email and said, oh, this reminds me of marriage too, you know? And uh, so I think there's something just very uh, human about that um, experience. Uh, and I think the companies that have then gone on to take partnering with startups seriously uh, are the ones that have consciously or unconsciously unpacked what these asymmetries are and then found ways to address, uh, address them. So I think it's a surmountable problem and that's what the how is really about. But I think the why uh, and the prospect of complementarity needs to take into account the challenge. And, and for me, that's, that, that's um, key to understanding how to make this work. Because actually, um, when I've been presenting my work over time, and this has actually been quite good. You, you've been very kind to point out that this has been a journey over a period of time. And it is true. I sort of stuck to this. Uh, and I got lucky because when I started the work, there weren't so many examples of it, and then I feel it's become a thing. Uh, but what I've heard the most when I presented this to various audiences is, um, you know, experiences of, of difficulty. You know, the idea sounds good, but when we've actually started working together, you know, it's been difficult. And, and from the startup's point of view, since you reminded me that there are 
you know, people in the audience from the startup side. I think one of the reasons why that Dancing with Gorillas title resonated with a lot of people was it hints at danger uh, from the startup's point of view. You could get trampled in the process. Uh, and so uh, understanding that asymmetry is, is important. But, but just to uh, end on a, on a more hopeful note, I think what the gorillas have recognized is that over time, they are competing with each other for the hearts and minds of the best startups. So I think the gorillas who are taking partnering with startups seriously are working hard to, to develop a reputation as a partner of choice. And just to bring it back to the marriage point, Shamin, my wife would also say she danced with a gorilla when we first danced a few times as well. So it has it resonates in many, many different ways. But like you said, and bringing it back to your research, so you're you've done over a decade of research on this. But the idea of partnering as you recognize in the book is in the DNA of Microsoft, because you mention a quote here, beautiful quote by Steve Jobs, he said, Microsoft's one of the few companies we we this at the time were able to partner with, that actually worked for both companies, he says, Bill Gates and Microsoft were really good at it because they didn't make the whole thing in the early days. And they learned how to partner with people really well, that idea of it being embedded in the DNA and Microsoft being a partner type company was absolutely key. And you continue here and you say, while partnering has been in Microsoft's DNA, as acknowledged by Steve Jobs, even Microsoft has to work extremely hard at startup partnering. A key point of the story is that Microsoft's current status as a partner of choice for many digital startups did not happen overnight. It has been effortful, not effortless. This is a key point for those organizations who think they can pick up your book as a playbook. The playbook will direct you in the right direction, but there's a hell of a lot of work to do. Absolutely. And, and incidentally, just as an aside, where that quote from Steve Jobs uh, comes from is this fascinating uh, joint interview. It's probably the last time Gates and Jobs did something like that in public. This was from back in 2007, I think, at the D conference. And this is a, a website, a, a video people can find on websites like YouTube. And so there's this very interesting uh, interview with the two of them. And in the end, you know, um, questions are invited from the audience. And one seasoned journalist gets up and asks, what would each of you say you could learn from the other? And Bill Gates says, I would love to have Steve Jobs's taste. And everybody laughs because, of course, uh, Jobs had criticized uh, Bill Gates's taste. Uh, and then Jobs says, uh, you know, um, because Bill Gates and Microsoft didn't build the whole banana, as he put it, you know, they learned to partner with companies. That being said, I think a lot of companies develop the competence to partner with other companies like them. And when they start getting to the realm of dealing with startups, then the asymmetries sort of uh, came into play. Uh, I would say the uh, IT companies like Microsoft sort of over time recognized this, worked hard at this. And I think they were fortunate to have good people um, at play. I think pharmaceutical companies in some ways have been uh, very sophisticated because they figured out a while ago that biotech startups were good talking to. I found automotive companies, by contrast, sort of um, more recent converts to the idea because I think they've been very used to dealing with SME, small and medium-sized enterprise suppliers that they dealt with in a very sort of controlling fashion. Uh, so I think different industries have uh, come at this at, at different paces in terms of um, being comfortable with asymmetric uh, partners. Uh, and in the case of Microsoft, um, I just think some of the people who have driven the effort have been key. So I mentioned Daniel, Daniel Lewin, who has a Steve Jobs connection. So as a young man, Daniel Lewin was in the Macintosh team. Uh, Lewin was the only non-techie that um, Jobs took with him when he left Apple to set up Next. Uh, and then eventually Lewin became an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. And so he was a Silicon Valley insider. 
who started the process of helping Microsoft engage with startups, and, and, and a lot of this was driven out of Silicon Valley. Then another key person was Zach Weisfeld, who was at Microsoft Israel, and I think he was sort of taking a lead from what Lewin was doing and inspired to uh, do bottom-up initiatives in Israel, creating a corporate accelerator, which then got replicated in other locations like uh, Beijing and Bangalore um, and so on. And he was given global leadership of this. And then in the different um, uh, geographic units like China and India, I came across people like in, in China, there's a chap called James Chow now, uh, in, in India, it was, in fact, the CFO, um, Amiresh Ramasamy, who sort of got excited about this and started driving. And, and, and you know, when I had shared the draft of my book with someone to get a, 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 an endorsement, he said, you know, it struck me that you've mentioned a lot of people's names. And he said, I, I'm not so sure that's that necessary. But that's actually a big point of this, you know, individuals can and do make a difference. And with the exception of, of Daniel, I mean, the others, at least at the start of their involvement with the startups, weren't necessarily high-ranking officers. Uh, where, but by taking the initiative and then getting support from the higher-ups, they were able to put in that effort uh, to, to engage with startups. And I think it, it's fair to say it's been a learning process Early on, when I went to one of the initial meetings at uh, Silicon Valley that Microsoft put on for startups, during the lunch break, one of the uh, entrepreneurs commented to me, I was just there as a neutral observer, you know, uh, and uh, some of them took pity on me and were, were talking to me. And, and at one point, one of them said, hey, can I tell you what I really thought about the morning session? And I said, what? And he said, it was like watching your dad dance. So again, the back to my dancing skills, Shemin. Yes, yes. Um, but, but, but my point is a simple one, and that is that, you know, not every company gets it right in the first instance, uh, and it definitely takes uh, persistence and perseverance. So you're absolutely right, you know, uh, because my concern now is that it's almost become a fad. Every major company uh, seems to have something that they say they are doing with startups. Uh, but, you know, paying lip services and going to get a company very far. It really needs to have people within the organization who are committed to this, uh, both at the high levels, but also middle managers who will uh, make this happen. And by the way, I'm glad you left in the names. I think that leaving in the names and describing these people not only inspires us as readers to see that this is possible, but it also, it's because it's almost like business history in some ways where you're actually charting each move almost like a, a move on a chessboard, but that's why I wanted to mention the mindset. The mindset was key. It wasn't just about playing the right moves. It was about how you played it and how you thought about it. But I wanted to bring it to, you mentioned Daniel Lewin there and you mentioned Weisfeld. I wanted to try and map them to the structure that you present the book in because I found this really helpful because in presenting Microsoft's account of their startup journey, you describe these three broad phases, and perhaps we'll take our audience through today. If we get through that, it'll be fantastic. The first was the launch of BizSpark. I remember BizSpark, and I remember not really knowing what it was. I thought it was just another event, actually. And when you read about it, and you read how it was a purposeful move to bring Microsoft startups, future customers as such, onto their 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 uh, structures and the .NET platform, it makes absolutely perfect sense. And you say Microsoft's large-scale programmatic initiative, which was BizSpark, was to engage young startups. And that was also the year Bill Gates exited day-to-day -day operations at Microsoft and left Steve Ballmer in charge. Let's start there, of course. And this is also a key player, as you mentioned, as Daniel Lewin. Right, exactly. And uh, so... I think this was the culmination of a lot of efforts that uh, Lewin had already initiated since he came on board. And I think this was a direct response to this open source movement threat. Uh, so they did want um, startups to be using Microsoft tools, uh, and those tools were not uh, readily accessible to the startups, both 
uh, I suppose, from a price perspective, but also a distribution perspective. And they decided they would do something about this. And so they said, we will give away software tools to startups that have been in business for less than three years and uh, have, have less than a million dollars of revenue. And I mean, this was a big commitment. Apparently, the way Microsoft was structured back then, only Steve Barmer could sign this off, and he did. Uh, and so off they went. And I don't know, maybe the uptake exceeded what they what they had anticipated. I think in a couple of years, there were you know, 30 or 40,000 startups around the world that jumped at this opportunity. So from that point of view, it worked. But what I think is really interesting and which not a lot of people seem to remember anymore is that Daniel's team then decided to do another program called BizSpark One. And they said, we'll take the 100 most innovative uh, startups from this 30,000, 40,000 BizSpark members and give them the opportunity to work with us very closely for a period of 12 months. And we will help them with technology enablement and we will help them to go to market. And, uh, you know, that was, I think, a very important part of Microsoft's experience of engaging closely with startups. So they called BizSpark the breadth initiative and BizSpark won the depth initiative. And in fact, uh, so the idea was that they would get startups from around the world. My observation, though, was initially this was very uh, Western-centric. When I went to the events for Business Business Park One, you found people from around the world, but they were running startups in Silicon Valley or the U.S. more generally, and in a few cases, Western Europe. What changed over the period of the the, the the couple of years or so when Bispark One was running full steam was that the folks in Israel heard about this and they started feeding startups into this program. Uh, and that's how uh, the Israelis started uh, making an impact on Microsoft startup engagement. And then eventually um, the Microsoft, uh, Microsoft Israel approach of creating a corporate accelerator, which was a much more intensive program, you know, just a four-month program as opposed to a 12-month program and startups co-located. Um, that became the next phase. And then Zach Weisfeld actually took global leadership. So in, in some senses, that first period that I talk about, the 2008 to 2012, that was really about Microsoft translating its intent, the, the strategic intent, into the initial partnering um, initiatives, uh, doing it in a very programmatic way. And I think that was the, the platform that was built on when you moved into the second phase. And there was some key little lessons here that I just wanted to shine a light on, Shameen, because for those people who are thinking about this, one of the great maxims in innovation or in startup work is get out of your desk, get away from your desk. Steve Blank, a former guest on the show is like, get out of the building in innovation. It's like, go and talk to your customers. And this didn't escape the team of BizSpark. They got out and they talked to Techstars, for example, this accelerator that exists in Boulder, Colorado. Those conversations were key as well. Perhaps you'll take us through that. Uh, absolutely right. And, um, in fact, uh, Techstars uh, eventually um, went on to, I think, play a big role on its own as a sort of a third party specialist helping uh, many companies to set up corporate accelerators. But yes, um, so Daniel knew uh, one of the, the Techstars co-founders. They were talking to each other. I think they got a lot of useful insight uh, from the Techstars perspective as well. And so it's it's very fitting that the foreword uh, for my book is is written by uh, one of the Techstars um, co-founders as well, uh, David Cohen. So um, Daniel brought a perspective be being a Silicon Valley insider and then his wider network, I think you're absolutely right, um, provided this extra insight into what startups were looking for uh, and I think this actually is, is, is very important because if companies want to do well by partnering with startups, they really need to understand 
where the startup is coming from. And, and uh, the people who are involved in the interface become very important because we talk about corporates and startups partnering, but in fact, it is managers of the big company engaging with entrepreneurs and the startup. And I think the, the engagement with tech stars, some of the people who were involved from the Microsoft side made it possible for people at the interface from the Microsoft side to have a lot of empathy for the startups because they either were entrepreneurs themselves or, or work closely with entrepreneurs. I also think, uh, incidentally, that when there are startup entrepreneurs where the, the entrepreneur or someone in the top management team has worked for a big corporation, that too makes a difference. You know, so having entrepreneurial managers and managerial entrepreneurs, I think that that helps um, to lubricate the process. I love that. And it matches so well to corporate innovation, because say, for example, you have uh, some colleagues who are responsible for innovation or transformation. By the way, everybody should be in an organization, but you know how, how it goes in organizations. I often think about how they need to be bilingual. They need to speak the language of the future and the language of the legacy organization. And in a similar way, that's what came to mind with Lewin and the team is they need to be able to st speak startup ease <laughs> and corporate ease as well, be able to communicate to the organization the benefits up here and the, to the startup as well. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. You know, I think that's extremely uh, well put. I think we saw a lot of this happening even then in the second phase of the of the Microsoft story, right? So where I start the next phase is when the Israelis were given global responsibility for the, the corporate accelerator program. And then, so Zach Weisfeld also, serial entrepreneur, but someone and, um, you know, who had been in Microsoft, sort of been in and out of Microsoft. So on the one hand, he had this, uh, deep knowledge of Microsoft. On the other hand, he was this uh, startup entrepreneur himself. And so I think that's a great example of someone who is bilingual um, in both the corporate speak and the, uh, the, the ability to engage with startups. And he, for example, would say, you know, you need to put the startup first. What you need to optimize for is the success of the startups. And when they are successful, the big company will uh, reap great reward. And I think that allows also, um, you know, the same philosophy to be extended to other geographies as well as this, um, as the initiatives expand and take root in other business units and other uh, parts of the world. Uh, and so again, um, so, so in India, for example, uh, which was one of two countries that followed suit immediately after Israel started. One was China, the other was India. And on the Indian side, I said the uh, CFO, Amirish Ramasamy, got interested and, and was involved, but he had the wisdom to very quickly bring in an entrepreneur uh, to run the accelerator. And eventually, that's what happened in China as well. Uh, James Chow is a former entrepreneur. Uh, and so having these people who are, who are bilingual, exactly as you say, uh, and it's important to understand both sides, you know, because actually, in a funny sense, over time, dealing with the startups becomes the relatively easier thing. Dealing with the people on the inside who might be skeptical, uh, that, in fact, I think, in the end, takes up more time and energy of the people at the interface. So therefore, being very uh, fluent in the lingo of the of the corporation uh, becomes important too. Uh, and uh, so in terms of the Microsoft story, if, you know, Daniel sort of put in place uh, the strategic importance of engaging with startups, it was in the second phase with, uh, you know, the Israelis showing global leadership and a lot of the other, uh, you know, geographies following suit, you saw the, the wider expansion. And I think here, having the right people who are bilingual in different parts of the world definitely made a difference. So uh, I fully concur with, with that idea. It must be frustrating as well, because you mentioned empathy there, the empathy for former entrepreneurs working in the big corporation, the gorilla. And I can imagine 
I'm sure there's been many times where those people who work for the corporate gorilla sometimes like close the door, make sure there's no microphones recording and kind of go, man, if a role comes up in your startup, think about me, I want to get out away from the bureaucracy. And that was constantly running through my head is the the draw of that and the freedom when you're working in these accelerators and then having to go back to the mothership, like going back to the Borg in Star Trek and, and kind of going, oh my God, I have to deal with all that. So there was all this messy middle piece that is very hard to capture. And you do that well in the book, but it would be a totally different book if you were to cover just those conversations as well. But I wanted to jump to phase two of this history, essentially, of the startup. And the second phase covers the subsequent startup partnering initiatives that had a global footprint. You mentioned there Israel, for example. And these were brought under the single umbrella that which became Microsoft Ventures in 2013. And you tell us here, in 2009, a new depth programs, BizSpark 1, began to take shape. You mentioned that earlier. The initiative was an invitation-only depth program for 100 most innovative startups handpicked from the member base of the BizSpark Breath program. As Lewin put it then, the idea behind BizSpark 1 is to cast a finer net using Silicon best Valley best practices and then lift the net up to find the startups that are most likely to succeed in the market and shape the industry's future. And you touched on some of these points, but I just wanted to tr try and bring it back into a structure so people can go, oh, phase one was this, phase two was this. And then perhaps you'll, perhaps you'll tell us a bit about phase two, and then we'll jump to phase three, and that'll be a, an excellent show as an introductory show today. Sure. So, so just to clarify, the, the way I talk about phase one is with the start of BizPark, that was in 2008, coincidentally, the year that my Dancing with Gorilla's article came out. And so, you know, I started my immediate sort of follow-up work was understanding about BizSpark and so on. Uh, and I would say that first phase runs for about four years to about 2012, by which time BizSpark 1 has sort of run its course. Um, and as the Israelis understood that this was you know, a useful way in which to engage, but also came up with an alternative format. In 2012, the first Microsoft accelerator in Tel Aviv was set up by Zach Weisfeld. And this was immediately followed the very same year by accelerators in Beijing and Bangalore because the leadership had recognized that um, the, the people in Israel seem to be onto something and, you know, you might as well do this on a more global basis. And then Zach became the global guy for startups. So, so I think Daniel's work was extremely important in that initial phase. Um, also, just interestingly, in 2011, just before that first phase ended, um, there was a reorg within Microsoft. So Steve Barmer was still the CEO, but... Uh, a new president was appointed for the server and tools business. And this chap was somehow very keen on cloud computing. And so very naturally became engaged with what Daniel was doing. And even subsequently, when Zach uh, was interested to set up the corporate accelerator, he actually made a beeline for uh, this president of the server and tools business. And his name is Satya Nadella. So you can actually see somehow an overlap between what Obama was doing. And by the way, I, I sometimes think Obama doesn't get enough credit for some of the things he did, which Nadella was able to build upon. But also the fact that Nadella, well before he became CEO, was doing things that were directly linked or, or, for, or, or for which startups were extremely relevant. You know, cloud computing has been a game changer for startups. Um, and so I think that that interplay also is is a very interesting. So anyway, the first phase was was really, I would say, Daniel's work. And I would say if you started from Bispark, although his work starts much before, you know, the, the Bispark piece leading up to the setting up of the first Microsoft accelerator in Tel Aviv. So that's 2008 to 2012. I wanted to just echo what you said about Balmer because I, I too as well have given him a bad, uh, bad rap saying that he's, 
he, he was more valuable to the company as he left and he made more money himself when he left the company. That is true. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, when I read the book and you mentioned about him giving speeches in China, for example, where you are, by the way, for our audience, Shamin is joining us from Shanghai. There's been a surge in COVID as well over there, Shamin. Sorry, just to take a little sidestep. Maybe you'll share that with our audience. Yes, that is true. That is true. So it is both of what you say are true. I am based in China and, and right now China, uh, Shanghai certainly is having a bit of a COVID upsurge. So, so yes. So, so let's say 2011, 2012, I would say is a, was, was sort of a transition point. And so cloud computing becomes big. Um, uh, Zach is now um, running the show. And so the second phase and, and speaking of China, so now China is also in the mix because right after the uh, opening of the, very shortly after the opening of the Tel Aviv accelerator, they start one in Beijing and they start one in Bangalore, sort of under the over, oversight of the, of the team in Israel. So Zach is the global leader. Eventually, they will open up other accelerators in, in the West. But if you think back to what I'd said about Bispark One and how there were, it, it seemed to be a bit Western centric, you know, there were a lot of uh, North American and European startups. And then the, the Israeli startups came along. This was different. So it started in Israel, but, you know, they turned East. And so it was the emerging markets like China and India, where they were actually uh, pioneering this, these accelerators. And it's remarkable how well these accelerators have done in both these countries over a decade. And today you have a lot of very successful startups that are alumni of these accelerators and or have co-founders from Microsoft. In fact, a lot of the leading AI players in, in China have uh, Microsoft, uh, former Microsoft people. Uh, and, and in some cases, they also have had an involvement with the accelerator. So uh, for me, the second phase was really one of expansion and, and a much broader global vision in, in the sense that now the emerging markets came into play. Um, and I think it's sort of um, the timing also worked out in terms of uh, riding the mobile Internet wave. And of course, the cloud computing wave. And between these two, Microsoft, I think, did better with the cloud, which was what Satya was driving, and less so with the mobile uh, game, which is why Steve Barmer gets the, the rap that he does. Uh, and of course, that simply did not work out for Microsoft. But uh, some of those initial startups in, in these uh, accelerators actually were trying to do things on, on Windows Phone. So that was the second phase. Uh, and I think was very important in, from Microsoft's learning perspective in terms of being exposed to these other geographies. And so, for example, a place like China, where I'm based, uh, which Microsoft took very seriously for a, uh, has taken seriously for a very long period of time. And unlike Google or Facebook, uh, still sort of managed to continue to be a big player in, um, you know, I think they recognize the importance of the other ecosystem giants in this part of the world that are unique to here and you don't find elsewhere, like um, Alibaba, Tencent, and Baidu. Uh, and I think they found a way to engage with startups that, such that the startups would be comfortable to work with Microsoft and also seek to engage with some of these um, other ecosystem giants. I was telling you that uh, a friend of the show and former sponsor of the show is, is Microsoft for startups and Andrew McAdam, great guy. He's been in in uh, Microsoft for quite some time. But sometimes I'd, I'd have a meeting with him in Microsoft HQ and I used to bring a Windows phone in <laughs> and, and I had an iPhone. <laughs> I'm, I'm revealing my hand here. But I, I used to bring the Windows phone and it wasn't even it wasn't even uh, charged or anything. <laughs> but it, because they'd always look down at the tech you had. And um, I, I was interested. And the reason I said that was because you noticed the exact opposite in the accelerators at this stage. 
they weren't so technology, they were te more technology agnostic at that stage. There were people using Macs, there were people using even different tech stacks like AWS, for example. I thought that was an interesting fact. That is correct. And I think uh, this was one of the things that the accelerators initially were, your success as a startup, uh, and our interest is to support the best startups. Now, that being said, then they'd say, well, we're also giving you $125,000 worth of Azure cloud credits or, or, or something like that. But, you know, it's not a precondition to join us. Over time, I think that changed. And when we get to the third phase, I will speak to that. But, but in the second phase, which was really about, the, I think, the global expansion and particularly the turn towards uh, emerging markets in a big way, I think this was an important uh, message to um, convey. And, and as you rightly say, um, you know, uh, in fact, the, the, the big surprise I got when I went into the Beijing accelerator for the first time was, you know, there were Mac machines on the on the desks, and and the guy who was running the Beijing accelerator said to me, "This is the only part of the Microsoft empire where you will see this," um, and and this was still when Obama was in was in charge, so I guess you know that that definitely showed. Um, as sort of an intent. Of course, you can also say uh, they were still very keen for the startups to use their technology and were uh, giving them a good incentive to do that. But but certainly they showed uh, an open mind. And that open mind then got echoed further when in 2013, Nadella became CEO of Microsoft. We saw, for example, Microsoft tools like the 365 being available on app iPads, for example, as well. So I think that's an important point, because many organizations get bogged down in kind of proprietary level technology versus open source. And it seemed that Microsoft embraced that open source mentality and kind of embracing more tools and go, let's build a relationship first, and then see what happens further down the line, etc. But I just before we go to that phase three, I felt it really was important that Microsoft had planted seeds in emerging markets. They, as you mentioned earlier on, they had an understanding and they had some people in those emerging markets that really paid off later. And also there was the Microsoft for Africa program as well, which was really important. That's exactly right. Um, so I think uh, Microsoft have been a truly global company. Uh, and I think they have also uh, been aware of the future importance of Africa for a while. And so uh, when I visited uh, Microsoft in Johannesburg as part of the research, I could see, you know, pictures of Bill Gates having come and opened, um, you know, certain facilities there and so on. And you could clearly see that they were, they had their eye on the future. Uh, and I think with with Africa for them, um, they saw a big opportunity, but it would require capacity building first. And a big part of this would be enabling uh, digital skills. And so I think at, at different levels, you know, helping youth develop skills, helping small and medium-sized enterprises develop uh, their digital capability and so on. I think there was a lot of effort. But uh, every time I spoke to someone at Microsoft for Africa, they would say, and by the way, this is not CSR. This is not corporate social responsibility. This is not charity. What we're doing here is actually very hard-nosed um, business dealings because we see the, the big potential of this market. So I think uh, from that point of view, you can uh, say that Microsoft has uh, both been very conscious of the, the markets that it was already very strong in that were big and important for them, but also uh, trying to build a position in markets that they knew would become uh, very important. So I mentioned there, I said 2013, it was 2014, Nadella becomes CEO. The mindset changes again in the organization. You mentioned also here that Weisfeld found that Nadella's vision for Microsoft resonated with his efforts in startup engagement. He remarked to you once, I love this, Microsoft accelerators were growth mindset in action, referring to Nadella's fondness for Professor Carl Dweck's concept regarding the human capacity to believe that change and improvement in one's capabilities is possible. 
and hence to strive for it. And he also observed 10 years ago, this was 2016, 10 years ago, Microsoft was not seen as relevant or in the loop with the entrepreneurial community. And he added that he and his team found it immensely satisfying that Microsoft had come such a long way in being supportive of startups. And the reason I wanted to emphasize that point is it's the same for many innovation initiatives. They take a long time to show fruit on the vine. They don't in the early days and they often get killed and quashed at very early stages. This was given not only time and patience and effort, but it was given executive effort as well from Balmer and, and Nadella. Absolutely. And so I think what the Microsoft story illustrates very well is the importance of both top-down and bottom-up um, support initiatives, support, and so on. Um, I think being purely bottom-up uh, while important, and that's why I mention a lot of middle managers in the book to show that you don't have to be um, helpless in the face of, you know, a hierarchy, uh, as uh, Robert Quinn puts it, uh, you know, this helplessness in the face of hierarchy doesn't necessarily have to um, be a, a, a barrier. You know, there are people who have shown that it's possible. And I think Zach Weisfeld initially when he started his work in Microsoft Israel, he wasn't a senior global leader that came afterwards. But of course, he had air cover from the likes of Dana Lewin, and then people like um, uh, Satya Nadella, as well as a senior uh, leader, even as a president of, the, of, of a business, and then of course, eventually becoming CEO. So I think both are important. And I think um, uh, just one on its own doesn't uh, yield the magic in terms of making this sustainable over time. Yeah, and all supported by that mindset, as you mentioned many times throughout the book. Let's jump to 2018 then, because a new avatar for the engagement of a, a startup community comes along, which was our former sponsor, Microsoft for Startups. Maybe you'll take us through that. And then also we'll latch on the fact that Microsoft brought it a step further and started the co-sell program in a really important initiative. Exactly. So 2014, um, Satya becomes CEO. And I think that period from 2014 to 2018 really saw the maturing of the startup partnering program. Um, and I think what Microsoft was figuring out uh, was who can we add the most value to? Which startups can we add the most value to? And I think they came to the view that, first of all, it had to be enterprise-oriented uh, startups. And then I think they also realized, because these accelerators were not investing in startups. Um, and in fact, so what they, I think, realized was startups are looking for two things typically. One is funding. The other is, especially for enterprise-facing um, startups, clients. So they were not going to do the funding. Uh, they felt that there were other vehicles for that, but they were going to do the, uh, they could play a big role in helping startups connect with corporate clients who were Microsoft's own clients. And so that led to the view that, okay, actually we need to be talking to more mature startups. So if you um, sort of see how they were evolving by about 2016, the people I was talking to were saying, oh, we are now actually focusing more on um, more mature startups. They need to have had at least a Series A round funding. And then by 2017, I saw that quite uh, formally articulated when a new accelerator was set up in Shanghai. So China is the only country where they set up two, one in Beijing, the other in Shanghai. Um, and then by 2018, all of this was brought under this umbrella called Microsoft for Startups. BizSpark was formally retired, so after a decade, and this co-sell program was introduced. And this seemed to really then now zero in on what the win-win for the two sides could be. And it boiled down to something very simple, which was you as a startup build on top of Microsoft tools, and by now there was cloud computing that had come into play, and the really best startup 
solutions we will co-sell. And I think a game changer was Satya then changing the incentive structure for salespeople such that you know, they were as incentivized to, to sell partner solutions in the co-sell repository as they were to sell their own uh, solutions because by now cloud computing had become so important that it wasn't about selling licenses, it was about selling cloud consumption. And so how did it matter if it was a, a partner solution? So this, I think, sort of, it, it's so it's so interesting where they reached in 2018, you know, I mean, uh, compared to 2008, so BizSpark started then, and then BizSpark gets retired. The original BizSpark One idea was very much this, you know, technology enablement and go-to-market. And so after, of course, a lot of this happening in the corporate accelerators, but also having that initial phase of, you know, we're technology agnostic, it's fine, and so on. And of course, Microsoft may still say that, but I actually began to see a much more strategic focus in reality. And so, you know, if you really want to make uh, take advantage of the co-sell program, which is surely very attractive to startups, then you need to be highly aligned with the gorilla. Uh, and so it was as if the idea of engaging with startups became mainstreamed into the core of the Microsoft strategy. And I think that is when engaging with startups really pays off. You know, it's one thing to have engaging with startups as a sort of a sideshow. Uh, you know, it can get people excited. It can get useful media attention. Uh, but that's the sort of thing, if it only stays at that, that's the sort of thing that then people deride as innovation theater. I think a very, very important part of the Microsoft story is it actually, from the beginning, was viewed from a very strategic lens. And it dovetailed very nicely with the strategy around cloud computing and a lot of the things that Satya was pushing for. Eventually, then they added a corporate venture capital arm and, and so on and so forth. And it's become even bigger and more sophisticated. But I think the essence of you know, making sure that it's aligned with the core of the business over time is something that I think any company can usefully uh, take away a, a lesson from. A really useful metaphor came to mind for me, which was, if you think about a team, a professional team, for example, doing really well, one of the questions you got to ask is, what did we do a decade ago? What what did we do with the academy? What did we change something in the culture? What, etc. And I kind of saw it that way that one was that that they invested a long time ago, and that the, that paid dividends a decade later, and that in itself has many lessons. But I also thought about Max Planck, the famous physicist, physicist who said of science that it advances one funeral at a time. So the old mindset also has to die out. The way we used to do things needs to die out. And that probably meant some people were moved on and had their futures freed up, for example, within the organization. So you have to pick the right team as well, the right type of mindset of people. But it also then reminded me of how valuable this was as a strategy, because you see this with major players, they become so big that they don't spot emerging opportunities in the marketplace. So in the 1950s, we see GM and Ford, in comes Toyota, they ignore it, they don't see it as a competitor. But Toyota is appealing to a different customer. And if you think of your, your organization as big as Microsoft, the salespeople are naturally going to go for the whale, the big customer, because that's the big payday. They're going to ignore all these small organizations, these startups, who are the future customers. And that reminded me in turn of Freshers Week in college, where all the banks are trying to get you to join because they know there's a switching cost switching to a different bank. And that's what happens here. Build on our stack. We'll give you loads of free stuff. We'll make you feel good. We'll we'll actually train you genuinely and authentically. But there is a payback down the line, and it seems to have paid off big time for Microsoft. I think that's very very well put. Funnily enough, I still bank with the bank that I <laughs> signed up with during Freshers Week in class. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. I think um, in the case of Microsoft. It has suddenly paid off. I mean, 
I don't think any company is perfect. I think you know companies constantly have the the need to improve. And you know, when I speak to people at Microsoft now, some of them say, you know, we still have a long way to go, and now we're really trying to scale up the way in which we're engaging with with startups and so on. Uh, and actually, that that's useful too, <laughs> to be somewhat self-critical still. But uh, as you say, um, you can see the the dividends. Uh, it, you know, the the effort over time has paid off. And also, you made a very important point. I think that the people who make a difference at different stages of the process aren't 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 the same. Uh, and actually, one of the joys I've had over time is meeting people in Microsoft and then telling them about things they didn't know about the early days of startup partnering and so on. Yeah, and I, I thought that's so important. I was saying to you, I think for people working in Microsoft, it's a much must read book. It's like a strategic overview from somebody who doesn't have any skin in the game who's actually just telling the story as they observed it and as they interviewed. And that is a very unique and very valuable viewpoint for an organization as well. But it, it's been Absolutely great talking to you about this. Reminder to our audience, this is part one, and we haven't even got into the book yet. And uh, as you can see behind me, I have a copy of Grills Can Dance Up For Grabs. It's a fantastic book. It's a must read if you're thinking about start partnering with startups, or if you're a startup thinking about partnering with a legacy gorilla. This is the book to read. On the next episode, we hope to cover these. I don't know if we'll get it through at all. But the lessons from the Microsoft story, one, as Shameen mentioned there briefly, co-aligning with strategy, two, co-innovating with startups, and three, co-evolving with ecosystems. Shameen, for people who want to find you in the meantime, before we release episode two, where can they find you? Well, www.gorillascandance.com has a lot of information about the book, and I can uh, be reached through that, but also I'm on LinkedIn. So uh, I'd be delighted to connect with uh, members of the audience. And if I can just very quickly uh, sneak in the, the, the final part of the story where I end right before the pandemic is when Microsoft introduces this program for global social entrepreneurs. And so I think this is also a theme uh, to bear in mind that partnering between gorillas and startups can be a force for good. And I just think with everything that's happened with the with the pandemic, you know, the sustainable development goals that the United Nations talked about in 2015 uh, are going to be even more difficult to achieve by 2030. But, you know, in a, in a sense, all the more urgent, all the more important. And in, in this very turbulent world, you know, um, I just think there are many, many efforts needed, of course, uh, for positive societal change. But I, I believe that these partnerships between very, very different types of actors can be important. too. Well said, and we'll cover that in the next episode as well. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft and other corporations on partnering with startups. Shameen Prashantham, thank you for joining us. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I am flattered and amazed at uh, how carefully you've read the books. So oh, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services and powering its customers by making financial services accessible to all. Check them out at hellozai.com. I'll see you next week for part two of Gorillas Can Dance.